Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Line of Land Ministries, and this is another edition of a program that we're holding a series of teachings on called The Final Redemption of Israel. We're talking about some of the elements of the greater exodus. This is a very large topic. We're covering many points. At the moment, we are in the midst of reviewing the previous covenants that God has made with man and mankind, and In particular, from the last program, we were focused in on the covenant with David and addressing specific things that were established for David. David was to be the king of Israel forever, and that implies that Israel will be forever as well. And furthermore, it was clearly stated by the prophet Jeremiah that the Levite priest would serve continually before the throne of David bringing bird offerings and sacrifices. As you know, New Covenant teachers, particularly quoting from the book of Hebrews, take issue with those things. They say the Levite priests aren't anymore. They were fallible, that the Messiah has replaced them. Temple system has gone away. Sacrifices have gone away. And the New Covenant has, in effect, replaced the Old Covenant. That's a review of last week's program. We are still in the midst of talking about David's covenant, and we have one final more point that I want to share about that, and it ties back into, again, what the writer of Hebrews has said before we now move to the new covenant. The point of going through these each of these covenants is to show that the Scripture emphatically teaches that these covenants are everlasting, that they remain and that one covenant doesn't replace another covenant. And essentially, in the simplified expression we use in the Christian world, they say there's an old covenant and new covenant. The old covenant was for Israel, the new covenant is for the church, and the church has replaced Israel. That's called replacement theology or covenant theology, and it's not correct. It is not correct according to the scriptures. So with that as an intro, let's specifically look again to some of the details of the covenant that God made with David. There is a psalm that was written by David, which expresses part of the covenant and the meaning of the covenant that he had. Let me read for you. It's Psalms 110, and I'm going to read the first seven verses where it says, A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook 
by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. This psalm is primarily about the Messiah. And the focus of the psalm is that he is a Lord forever, that he's the son of David. David is saying, sit at my right hand, and the Lord, and he's referring to the fact that David referred to a descendant of him as being the Lord of all things. And this is an intriguing part of the covenant with David is that the Messiah would come from him. He would be the son of David. That's part of the covenant that God made with David. And you also heard the reference to Melchizedek, you know, the priest that Abraham paid tithes to in his day. And it's pointing to that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek as well as being the son of David. How did the Messiah address this point of this psalm from being the son of David? Does he emphasize the work of priest, Melchizedek, or does he emphasize the work of king being the son of David? And the answer is that he emphasizes the kingship and being of the son of David and that he'll become the ruler of the world and he'll judge all of his enemies. In Matthew 22, beginning at verse 41 through 46, it says this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Yeshua asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This was a very powerful component of the Messiahship for Yeshua. The Messiah, the son of David, according to the psalmist, this is according to the words of David in his covenant with God, is to become ruler of the whole world and he will judge all of his enemies. And that's what then sets the stage for we're now going to talk about the new covenant. The new covenant continues on from the other covenants. And so let me read to you the new covenant as given to us in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. We're going to go through several points here, and you're going to find there's a tremendous connection between the covenant with David and with the new covenant and also connection with the previous covenants, going all the way back to the Mosaic covenant, and going all the way back to Abraham and the covenant God made with him, that the new covenant, the word new, simply doesn't mean replacement. It means renewal. It means bringing forth and bringing them to fullness. So let me read to you again from Jeremiah 31. Let's see how Jeremiah prophesies this new covenant that we're all a part of. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let me correct that. You see, in the Christian world today, it should read, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the Gentiles and the church and not Israel. Because that's what they teach. They teach the new covenant is for the church. Jeremiah didn't say that. It says it's for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
the two houses of Israel. The new covenant was purposed for them. It was not purposed to establish the church and the Gentile church separate from Israel. So that's right off, right from the beginning how this new covenant is defined. Not like the covenant which I made with your fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Others in the Christian world define the new covenant as replacing um, the law and replacing the covenant that God made with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And here it does make the uh, contrast to those days, but the contrast is instead of going to Mount Sinai, hearing the voice of God, and Moses getting a couple of tablets of stone, and here comes the commandments of God on stone, and then Moses records for us the rest of the commandments in the book we call the Torah. Instead, what they say is, well, he completely did away with the tablets. He completely did away with what Moses wrote, and now we have a whole new thing. It doesn't say that. It does not say that in Jeremiah. It says, I'm going to take the law where you were at Mount Sinai and you heard it, I'm now going to write those on the tablets of your heart. And instead of you hearing the booming, loud voice of God from the mountain, you're going to hear the small, quiet voice by his spirit inside of you. That is what was being described as the contrast of the new covenant. Each one of us come to faith in the Messiah, not by standing at Mount Sinai, not by being delivered out of Egypt. Each one of us come to terms with him by standing before the Lord himself and by his spirit. He leads us, woos us, guides us, and we accept him. We accept what he says, and we call him Lord, and we say, yes, I will do what you say, Lord. And inside of us, then suddenly, innately, we understand the commandments. We know what is right and what is wrong. It's in our spirit, and we further train ourselves. We've learned the commandments of the Lord so that we understand all of them. He goes on to say, this is a continuation of the definition of the new covenant. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his neighbor, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. At the moment, that has not been fulfilled. At the moment, the remnant and those who are believers who have accepted the Lord, their sins are forgiven, and they have the testimony of knowing the Lord. But the world is full of people who don't know the Lord, and we have to tell them. Now, obviously, this part of the new covenant is not going to be fulfilled completely until the Messiah returns. That is a beautiful definition. There is still a final redemption to occur that leads us all the way to his kingdom. Yes, we're in the process of redemption. Yes, there are many people being saved. Yes, we get to participate in the new covenant. But it won't be fulfilled. It won't be finished. It won't be to the fullness of what it's supposed to be 
until the Messiah returns and we're in the kingdom with him and all will know the Lord. He goes on to say, and this is where it gets rather interesting for us. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin and I will remember no more. Amen and amen. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. If you recall... In the previous teaching, I showed you that the sign of the covenant with David was the fixed order of day and night, that the earth turns on its axis, and as long as there's day and night, the Lord has said on the sign of that, then there will be no want for a person to be on the throne of the house of David, that's the Messiah, and that the Levitical priesthood will offer sacrifices before him continually. And he said the sign of that covenant that that will be, Jeremiah said, was there would be day and night. And they would continue as day and night. If that order ever changes and the earth doesn't rotate anymore, then yes, it's possible for that to be concluded and that covenant would not continue. Now he just took that same sign... It's part of the covenant with David, and he assigned it to the new covenant. Because you see, the new covenant is really the renewed covenant. It is the fullness of all of the previous covenants leading to the revealing of the Messiah in which the redemption is at the personal level, not at the national level. It is for each one of us individually to come before the Lord and to know the Lord. And he forms a personal relationship with each one of us. The sign of the new covenant is the same sign as with the covenant with David. It is day as followed by night. Night is followed by day as the earth rotates. The fixed order of day and night proves that the new covenant, are you ready for this, is for the offspring of Israel. And he simply says that if you can stop this order, then Israel will cease to be a nation. I, in my experience being in church teaching in my previous years, the church used to teach that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, that the church is now God's plan for working with mankind, not Israel. According to this prophecy in this scripture, that is false. God has been working with Israel, continues to work with Israel, continues to offer the Messiah and uses Israel as a light to the nations. And we know the Messiah is that light. Messiah is the king of Israel. He's not the king of nothing. He's the king of the kingdom. And he continues to minister to this day. And as the prophets have told us, there remains a remnant of Israel. So who are all these believers that believe in the Messiah? Whether you knew it or not, you are part of the remnant of Israel. You have been gathered up along with those that were first gathered with the native born 
And just as the law specified that all the commandments and covenants of the Lord are not only for the native born of Israel, of the house of Jacob, and for the tribes of Israel, but they are also for the alien and sojourner who may dwell or sojourn with you who believes in the God of Israel. If you believe in the God of Israel, you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. You are part of that family of Abraham. You don't have to be native-born. In the New Testament, we have a specific teaching, a doctrine that is firmly taught. It's called the doctrine of election, sometimes called the doctrine of adoption. And the church teaches that they weren't Israel, that we were adopted into the family of God. I fully agree that today everybody is adopted into the family of God. But that family that you're adopted into and that kingdom that you become a part of is called Israel. It is, that's God's plan. That's what he's always been working on. And so the whole idea of replacing Israel with something new is simply not according to Scripture. Now, we've covered six covenants and brought us up to the present state, but the prophecy goes on to say that there will be another covenant, and we need to mention that. It's called the covenant of peace. It's only mentioned a few times in Scripture. We know it's something that's into the future. It was first introduced to us by Moses in the law, and in chapter 25 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, behold, I give my covenant of peace. And he's making reference to Phineas, who, if you recall, in the zealous moment that he took on Zimri and Cosby, who had fallen under the persuasion of the prophet Baal, and the Midianites had come down and tried to compromise the children of Israel by bringing them to their festivals and turning them away from the teaching of Moses and the covenant with God, that he took a spear and he went in and impaled the two of them and brought to an end that the children of Israel would have anything more to do with Baal and have anything to do with the Midianite kings that were trying to compromise the whole nation. And the reward to Phineas is he's granted the covenant of peace. This is the future covenant of the kingdom. Now, that's kind of a, a short thing. It raises lots of questions. Well, what exactly is that and what does that involve? So let us look to some additional scriptures where it prophesies about the covenant of peace. And we have to go to Isaiah and Ezekiel. First in Isaiah, in chapter 51, verse 10, he says the following. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The covenant of peace is intended for the future believers, and it obviously comes in the millennial kingdom. It comes when the Messiah has joined us. Ezekiel 34 verse 25 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. We're talking about the days of being in the millennial kingdom. You know, the days in which the lion lays down with a calf and the wolf lays down with the lamb and there is no fear, no concern. The, 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 that's one of the signs 
of the millennial kingdom. It's one of the signs of the covenant of peace. My ministry, Lion and Lamb Ministries, kind of emphasizes some of that from Isaiah 11, and that's the ultimate covenant that we want to get to. We want to get to when beasts don't prey on one another and there's no harm that comes to mankind any further. Ezekiel 37 and verse 26 also speaks of it. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, which is just like all the other covenants. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Part of the covenant of peace is God dwells with us. And we know that he's to return to Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt and he will dwell in Jerusalem. And during the millennial kingdom, if you want to see the Lord or talk to the Lord, you just go there and he's there. That's part of the covenant of peace. We could say, well, some of the signs of it, or at least some of the key prophecies of it, is that we don't have animals preying on animals, and the Lord is actually dwelling with us in Jerusalem. Those are some of the elements of the covenant peace still yet to happen. Now, let me say something very pointedly here, which is what I've been trying to say about all these covenants. This covenant of peace, when it shows up in the millennial kingdom, isn't going to replace any of the previous covenants. It's going to add to the covenants. It's going to add to and fill them up even fuller to the covenant. Can I also mention to you that when we get into the kingdom and there is a temple service, there will be sacrifices. We will observe the feast of the Lord and we will obey all of his commandments. And in fact, it specifically says that if you don't come up to Jerusalem at the feast and so forth, then you don't get rain on your land. And there's a penalty if you fail to keep the commandments of the Lord. Now, I don't think people will be violating the commandments, but the penalty that is expressed in the law still remains, even in the millennial kingdom, which means that the word is permanent, it's everlasting, and it continues on. God remembers and keeps all of the covenants that he has made with mankind, regardless of whether men keep them or not. God keeps his promises, does not change his mind concerning his promises or of his covenants. And to suggest that God somehow is not keeping a covenant or that the covenant has gone away is you're assaulting the very character and person of God. That I do not recommend that you do. I believe you should repeat what the Lord has said, and that's what you should hold to. Now, those are the facts. Those are exactly as the scripture. It is essential for us to understand these future prophecies. And when God makes promises to the remnant of Israel and how he's going to bring the scattered exiles back to the land, that it's essential that you understand the covenant about the land, that you understand the covenant about how God defines his people, how they're the offspring of the house of Jacob, and how the Messiah is from the son of David. All of those things are essential in understanding the definition of God's kingdom and what is all our futures. So where are we at now in the whole subject? Well, the natural next question is, well, when does this final redemption come? We see the covenants, and God speaks to this yet future thing. Moses spoke of a time when 
we would be scattered in the nations, but then God would bring us back from those nations. In Leviticus, he talked about if when we repent, we confess that we'll come back, that God will remember the covenant for us. He'll not reject us. He'll bring us back. All of this is coming together, but there's a whole series of other prophecies that are things that we are aware of, but we didn't quite realize they're all connected to the subject of the final redemption. In fact, I'm going to list for you seven things that mark this subject that we're in, and it ties into when the final redemption comes. The seven things are, and we're going to go through these. Number one, we're talking about the last generation. There is a generation which will be at the end of the ages that will see the final redemption, be a participant in all of these activities that take place. And the scripture speaks to that generation. Moses emphatically spoke to that generation at the conclusion of the Torah. And, of course, all the other prophets speak of the last generation and what will happen. We're going to review a little bit of that so that you see how that's connected. And in particular, I'm hoping that you will also get the perspective that we're probably talking about us in this whole process, that this is, while this may be an interesting Bible study, the implications are it's about us, and we need to be paying attention to it from a personal standpoint. Number two, events leading to the second coming, and what I'm specifically saying is what Yeshua called the beginning of sorrows. The prophecies he spoke in the beginning of sorrows, they are a part of helping us to time out when is the final redemption. There's a very specific prophecy given by Ezekiel, which is a regional war with a northern army, and it results, and the reason why it ties into the final redemption, it results in God making a declaration that the exile to the nations is over. I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. God said that if Israel misbehaved, that he would scatter us to the nations. There's a day coming when God will say, okay, that punishment is complete. Now the exile's over, and he's going to begin to bring us back. That is the picture of the final redemption, and I'll show you that prophecy. On the heels of that prophecy, and as a part of that, there's a prophecy that speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the whole house of Israel and on all of mankind, a worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this will be very significant and important in understanding how God will work the redemption. It also includes the restoration of the two houses of Israel. The new covenant was given when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. But the final redemption talks about the reunification of those two houses and how they will become one in the hand of the Lord. We'll review that. Number six, the start of the Great Tribulation, the abomination of desolation, which is to occur in a winter season, so that three and a half years later it wraps around to fulfill the fall feasts and the coming of the Lord with the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of the Lord in the Day of Atonement, and finally the first festival in the kingdom, Sukkot, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles. To come to that as the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation three and a half years earlier has to begin in a winter 
which then very shortly thereafter, as a start of the Great Tribulation, in the early spring, there's a Passover. Passover comes in the spring, and and the Passover is the starting point of the great exodus. It's the starting point of the gathering, and the journey now begins to the promised land. By the way, I will just mention this to you, that in, in Jewish circles and in the way they teach these things, there are several Sabbaths that precede Passover. In fact, there are three of them that precede Passover in which they bring out the prophecies, are you ready, for the final redemption of Israel. They teach the Jewish people there is a future Passover coming in which the final redemption will take place, the exodus that's greater than the one from Egypt, that, and they prep them for it. That teaching is in part of what I've been doing in here to remind you what these prophecies say, because this is a very clear expectation on the part of the house of Judah in the land of Israel today. They are expecting this, looking forward to it, and every Passover we look for it. I might mention, because I'll touch on it here later on, what's the sign in the Passover that says, hey, this is the Passover that the final redemption, the greater exodus, begins at? What is the sign that's in the Passover? There's something that's done special in every Passover Seder that does it. It's called the cup of Elijah. We pour a cup for him at the Passover. We open the door. We call for him to come in to see if he's in our neighborhood. He doesn't show up. Okay, we get to drink the cup and enjoy the cup, but it's not the Passover of the final redemption. If the day comes that we're observing a Passover and there's evidence that Elijah is in the world and the testimony is that he's there, present with us in the world, then that Passover suddenly becomes the start of the greater exodus, and it's a part of the final redemption. It's a very specific moment in the future. Finally, the final redemption is going to conclude with the coming of the Lord. And with his coming, the gathering of all of his saints, there's going to be the resurrection. So part of the resurrection is part of the final redemption. And what some people call the rapture, there are going to be certain people alive, believers, on the earth at the time that the resurrection takes place, and they are going to be changed and receive their immortal bodies, just like those coming out of the grave, and we'll all be with the Lord when he establishes his kingdom. What does the prophet say is the very first feast that we're going to keep in the kingdom? In other words, Yeshua's returned, all the saints are there, we're all at Jerusalem. What is the first thing that we're going to do? The prophecy says we're going to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, that the Lord is now here dwelling with us. And by the way, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering, meaning the fulfillment of the gathering of all of the exiles of Israel, the redemption of the final redemption of all of Israel. It ties together all the way into that. Now, what I'd like to do is go through each of the seven things I've mentioned to you and give you some additional information and to see how this is part of the definition that we use is when does this final redemption come? 
Let's talk about the last generation. There's a lot of things I could say on the subject. I'm going to shorten it down to simply one prophecy that's given to us and so that we get a sense of what it's really referring to when it talks about the last generation. Let me take you to Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1 through the first four verses. It says this, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since there was a nation until that time. The time of distress that has happened since no nation has ever known is referred to as the Great Tribulation in the Scripture. The Great Tribulation comes at the end of the ages. It comes at the fullness of the Gentiles. It comes when we're getting ready for the coming of the Lord. The Lord specifically said that he will be returning immediately after the days of the Tribulation. We know that the days of the Tribulation are three and a half years. Uh, according to the prophet. So we know that, that we're talking about what happens at the end of the age. That, that, that's what this topic is at this moment that Daniel is uh, talking about. It goes on to say, And at that time, everyone who's found written in the book will be rescued. That's interesting. There's a specific prophecy that says God's people going through the midst of that are going to be gathered up, pulled away from Babylon, pulled away from the nations, and will be rescued by God. They will come and be a part of what God's doing. And it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. We're talking about the resurrection now. But others to disgrace and utter contempt. We're talking about judgment. We're talking about God separating sheep and goats, if you will, and he's separating those that belong to him, those that don't belong to him. We know at the day of the Lord, that's the judgment on those that don't belong to him. We know that at the, it's symbolized in the Feast of Trumpets. When the trumpet sounds, we are gathered to the Lord and separate from the other people. And then it goes to say, those who have insight, and I think what he's referring to is people who are the recipients of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's a reference to, to that something, God's going to pour something out so that people truly understand you know, what is going on at that time. We're talking about the end of the ages. We're talking about the great tribulation. We're talking about the great escape. We're talking about the resurrection. He goes on to say further, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. I've taught this verse many times, but and this is a captivating verse that tells me about the last generation. Now, the other specific things that mentioned here are specifically prophesied events, but this last phrase, this last sentence is describing when does that last generation come? Here's what it says. Many, that's part of the prophecy. Many means increased population. When the world comes to a point that the population explodes, there will be many in the world, will go back and forth. That means that travel will be significantly increased. People will have the ability to go to and fro very easily as compared to all previous generations. And knowledge or technology will increase. 
So for, let me draw application to, I believe, based on the scripture, let's measure our last generation. I'm 70 years old. I was born shortly after World War II completed. And there were a lot of technology things that began there. Airplane travel began, automobiles began in a very powerful way. And I have witnessed in the course of my life this incredible thing take place, that it has happened. A lot of people don't know this, but back at the end of World War II, do you know how many people we had? We think we had in the world? We had about 3 billion people in the world. In uh, 1994, we had 6 billion people in the world. So some 50 years later, in the course of this generation, the population of the world has exploded. Right now, we have 7 billion people in the world. And in fact, compared to all previous generations, if you were to total up the population of all the people who've ever lived in the world before, and all previous from the creation up to the generation before me, it doesn't equal the number of people that are alive today in this specific generation. We are the greatest generation in population of all previous generations. There's no other generation even compares to us from that. Truly, we could qualify. We are the many in this prophecy. Next, it says that we'd travel to and fro. I can remember the days in my youth when someone would get an opportunity to fly on an airplane, a commercial airplane. It was like a major significant event. The whole family would find out about it that so-and-so is going to fly on an airplane, on a commercial airplane and travel, you know, somewhere on an airplane. In fact, in the days of my youth, if you uh, saw an audience and you were to ask, how many of you have flown on an airplane, on an airplane trip, you might see one or two hands go up in a whole crowd of people. Today, it's the reverse. You could take a crowd of people and you could say, how many of you have not flown on an airplane? And you'll see one or two hands. It's We truly are traveling to and fro. I point out to everybody that it used to be 150, 200 years ago, if you made a trip, so you were somewhere in America, and you made a trip to California, it was a trip of a lifetime, and you weren't going to be making the trip back. It, it, it was a major lifetime-changing event to travel such a distance or to go that way. People coming from the old world to the new world, coming to America, the whole movement across the, the country is a shining example of what travel used to be like, but that's not what we have today. Just go out, stand out there beside one of those interstates, and you'll see the world going to and fro. And it's like common knowledge to us in this day. I have a little green card in my wallet. It's called an American Express. If I want to with my passport, I can be in Jerusalem in about 24 to 36 hours. That's the other side of the world. And, oh, by the way, before Sabbath comes, I can be back here. I can go to there and come back. And the average citizen can go all the way around the other side of the world and come all the way back. As you know, this is the generation that's seen we've put men on the moon and brought them back. We've had men climb Mount Everest, the highest mountain, go to the depths of the sea. We have clearly moved 
and traveled in many, many different places. And truly, this generation can say that they go to and fro. Finally, the last characteristic of the, of the last generation, and at the end, is the technology, increase in technology. My goodness, I don't know that I need to explain to any of you about how just telecommunications has changed from telephone to cell phones, that the things in medical advances and science, uh, automobile technology, airplane technology, industrial technology, science and all of the things, chemistry, all of these technologies have increased dramatically. We barely had fingerprints when I was a kid. Now we have DNA. It just continues to increase. And in fact, there's a phenomena that's taking place in the world called the doubling of knowledge. I remember in 1958, I was in school and got the little weekly reader that we kids used to get. And there was an article, and for some reason, God really burned that particular thing into my memory because it was so significant to me. And I think he did so so that I could remember it for these days. In the article, and please don't ask me how in the world they measured it, but this is the point that we're making. That the volume of knowledge that the world had gained from 1900 up to 1950 was equal to all of the knowledge that mankind has had from creation up to 1900. That, that, that mankind now knew and had the knowledge of things that were equal to all of the knowledge that had been before. I paid very close attention to that because in 1970, they announced that the knowledge of the world had doubled again. That from 1950 to 1970, in the course of that 20 years, the knowledge gained by mankind and what they now knew was equal to all of the previous knowledge that had been in the world. And it had doubled again. And again, they announced it in 1980. Ten years later, they said, hey, it had doubled again. Then in 1990, they said, yeah, it had doubled again. In 1995, it doubled. It is at the point now where at 2010, they said... The knowledge of the world is doubling every two months, and it's still continuing. If you were to graph this, it has just gone into a vertical spike. That's something that has happened only to this generation. We are the only generation to ever experience such a thing. It used to be in the business world that you'd write a five-year business plan. It's worthless today. The changes coming in the next five years are so dramatic that businesses can't plan that way anymore. They have to hire special consultants that come in that help them. And about the strongest business plan you can build is maybe three years. You can have a three-year project because technology is changing so quickly and so fast. I believe, and that's just one evidence I'm giving you, there are a ton of other evidences uh, that would indicate the timing and the focus of our generation as It's the generation described in the scriptures as being the last generation at the time when the final redemption would take place. In fact, on this particular subject, and I've partially done this, but I could literally stand and speak for 12 hours 
on this subject, giving you evidence after evidence after evidence from the scripture and, and seeing the things that we have in this generation that would point to the same conclusion, that we must be the last generation. And I believe that we are. If we're the last generation, then this is the time when we should be seeing the elements of the final redemption take shape, these specific things that are to be a part of that process. At a minimum, I would remind you that at the beginning of my birth in 1948, Israel became a nation. The house of Judah began to come from the nations and went back to the land, just as the prophecy said. But there's not only a house of Judah, there's a house of Israel. There's a restoring of the two houses yet to take place, and there are many more yet to come, and and it leads to the coming of the Messiah. I can assure you that in Israel today, there are a host of rabbis and those that, that focus on the subject that they believe the coming of the Messiah is imminent, that the exile is about to be over. They have this sense of the final redemption, that this is the timing for when it will take place. All right, so item number one that tells us we may be seeing the final redemption is this whole business of being the last generation. At the beginning of the program, the lead-in to the program, one of the things that I emphasized was about destiny. And if you look at the history in the Bible of the spiritual destiny of many, many people, God had people, certain people born in the world for a specific purpose at that time. There is this incredible destiny, though, for the last generation. They are to be a part and the fulfillment of all of the things that we're talking about here and the completion of all of those things. That generation is the one that it says prophets and angels have desired to see, uh, to see what that would be like. I mean, the very prophets who prophesied of the final redemption really want to see what's going to be happening to the last generation. That is our destiny, to be a part of those things for the Lord. All right, so let's look at the next element that tells us about the final redemption. And in fact, here's what I'm going to do. Before I bring that subject up, I think we'll bring this particular episode to a conclusion. And next episode, we're going to begin again with this same discussion. And we're going to talk about what's called the beginning of sorrows. When the Messiah talked about the beginning of sorrows, he was talking about a particular atmosphere, a particular time. So we'll do that in the next program. Shalom to all of you.